Moses, the way of an intercessor. Lesson 8 Father, we thank you once again for your word, for your love, for your, your great gentleness. David said, thy gentleness hath made me great, O God. I so love you, Father, because you're the most powerful being there is. And yet with all of that power, you're the most gentle, gentle, gentle person there is. Your gentleness, Father, is working a work in us. So we love you, Father, and we praise you. We ask that you would again allow us to hear what you want us to hear from your Spirit. Holy Spirit, again, we ask you to teach us. And we acknowledge that you are the teacher of the church. You're the teacher of the church. Please keep showing us and teaching us how to better yield our ears and all our members as servants so that we might hear your voice telling us this is the way. Walk in it. So help us now, Father, as we walk through this session. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. I'm going to read from Exodus chapter 32, verse 7 through 14. Speaking about the boldness of Moses. The Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made them a molten calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, that brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them. And that I may destroy them, but I will make of you a great nation. But Moses besought the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your wrath blaze hot against your people, whom you have brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, for evil he brought them forth, to slay them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath. And change your mind concerning this evil against your people. Earnestly remember, earnestly remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and all this land that I have spoken of will I give to your seed and they shall inherit it forever. And final verse 14, then the Lord turned from the evil which he had thought to do to his people. And as I finished up last time, I said, amazing. But Moses had something strong at work in his spirit that caused him to be fearless to get into the very face of God about the people. And I said, think of that. In the face of God, reminding him of what he said. Now I put in point three, like I said, it's simply what does Moses say to God in those, that passage of Scripture that we read, what does Moses actually say to God, and what's the key word? And of course, what I'm looking for is the word remember. 
The word remember. Point four, I put this. Has God, the simple question, has God forgotten? Do any of us think that God may have forgotten his own promise and his own word? No. But here again, I've got here is the key. God always declares his necessary judgments for sin before they actually come. Now, this is crucial to hear. God always declares his necessary judgments to come before they actually come in the hope that somewhere he will find intercessors that will bring the covenant before him and cause a stay of execution so that people will again have opportunity for repentance. Now, you know, I teach this on everything we teach because it's all throughout Scripture. And it's still one of the greatest misunderstandings of the church. You find books and books and books and books and books about how people hear about the coming judgment, like I say. But God, if we are honest readers of the Scripture, always find that when God always when God pronounces, well, there are people that will go too far. We'll get to later. I think I have it in the passages here where God says, don't even pray for them. But in most cases, God knows that there's always opportunity to repent. But before judgment can be averted, he's looking for somebody that knows the covenant, that knows and then knows him well enough to know that you can get in their face. In other words, why doesn't God just come down? Why does God even have to speak to Moses? Why does God say, Moses, I'm going to make of you a great nation. Moses, get out of the way. This is a stiff-necked people. I'm going to take him out. Why doesn't he just take him out? And again, it's because it's not the will of God that even the he, Remember, God doesn't even have pleasure in the wicked perishing, much less his own people. And see, you and I have got to get this through our spirit. Otherwise, again, we will join the core of the rest of the body of Christ, which still thinks that God is kind of a little bit of pleasure. I mean, let's face it, a lot of people that I hear preach, it's almost like they get pleasure out of discovering somebody's sin and trying to show and trying to talk about, you know, what God's going to do. And if something does happen to the person, there's almost a kind of, I told you so, delight in them. And that's, that's an indicator of somebody, if I can just be simple about it, that's not really been with the Father very much. <laughs> it's never God, it never brings God's, God joy in any shape or form for somebody to have to go through punishment, ever. Ever. Because he's the Father from whom all fathers takes his name. He, that's just not his nature. It's not the nature of the God we serve. It's just not his nature. But this covenant thing is so strong that when people disobey the covenant, you see, for God to keep covenant, which he will always do, when people step out of covenant, for God to keep covenant, judgment has to follow. But within the very same covenant, there's the framework for deliverance from judgment that is due people. When people that have wisdom of the covenant come to God with his actual will and with the truth of who he really is, which is what Moses did. Moses said, God, remember, you said you'd be merciful. All through scripture you see all these. But again, rather than preach it, let me just keep reading because we'll get to it. 
The extreme extent of Moses' cry, point five, verse chapter, Exodus 32, 32. Moses says this, Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, and if not, blot me, I pray you, out of your book which you have written. There's two lengthy passages, one from Adam Clark's commentary, one from Kylan Leitz's commentary that I want you to take time to read on your own. I mean, as I go through it, I'll read just a couple of comments from them that talk about the book of life, talk about in those days what they meant, the book, the register of people in all cities and how they were kept and what it meant and different thoughts about what it meant to be added to or blotted out of and so on. But any... I said in the next paragraph, any who, want, who would want to be used well in intercession must understand the need to be as guiltless as possible before the Lord as they come to Him in prayer. While all of us will be guilty of unknown sin, we can nevertheless be faithful in the area of known sin. Otherwise, we will pray from presumption and not from faith. The reason I put that in there is because of this wonderful verse in Job that I have down here, Job chapter 22, verse 30 where it says that he will even deliver the one for whom you intercede who is not innocent. Yes, he will be delivered through the cleanness of your hands. There's a, there's a, there's, again, this is why your own personal integrity, your own personal desire for, for walking upright before him and being a man or a woman of character is just simply so essential. Uh, it's difficult to, be, um, to have any good success in prayer if you're a liar. If you're an exaggerator, a continual exaggerator. Um, because those are the little foxes that spoil the vines. You and I need to be delivered from the old joke about speaking evangelastically. Evangelastically. <laughs> where we stretch the truth. Where we add a little bit, we, you know, we, when you embellish things to make it look a little bit better than it was, sound a little bit bigger than it was, or what have you like that. You know, uh, I had to catch that about myself when I first got saved. Uh, like I think I shared with you a while back something, you know, and, you know, it's a horrible thing because I always get scared about even sharing even a touch of this for, for the concern that somebody might think I'm <laughs> whatever, I don't know. But I'm just trying to be honest. But, you know, when you come out of the penitentiary life and what have you, uh, I'm just saying your, your survival depends on your ability to, to talk or to... Or to um, whatever, lie in cases or whatever. Put it this way, when, you're, when you serve the devil, the devil's the father of liars, so lest all of you look at me holy, you weren't born saved yourself. So some of you have been known to prevaricate and not tell the exact truth. And all I know is that, you know, that comes, that when you get saved, that doesn't in, immediately leave your life. You'll find yourself still exaggerating or whatever because it's just part of what people do. It's just part of human nature that's fallen. And uh, I know I had to catch myself in that. The Lord dealt with me that very, very early because you never meant to. But I mean, this is before I was actually ministering, thank God. Although I have caught myself in years gone by, I've said things that weren't true. And I knew they weren't true. And God, the way he cured me is he said, every time you do that, I want you to stop in the middle of the sermon and tell the people you just lied. And I went, okay. So that brings you great joy. You know, and you're, and you're in the pulpit and say, you say something, you go, I just lied. And 
And uh, sometimes it just, it's kind of, you know, I'll, you just make something up and there's humor to it. And, but even with that, and I will say, you know, you guys have heard me say it. I just, I just lied. That wasn't true. But the point is, I found that God said something so simple to me. He said, son, he said, truth is anointed. He said, lies aren't. Exaggerations aren't. He said, you don't have to defend me. He said, I'm my own defense. He said, tell the truth. Because that's all I hear and that's all I speak and that's all I work with is truth. So one person got healed, one person got touched, one didn't, whatever. And again, whatever people think about Kenneth Hagin when he was alive, you know, he was one of my teachers many years ago. Never in my life, never ever in my life have I ever been before a man who spoke with more integrity and who spoke with more strength and who, when he spoke, his words carried weight. I've never in my life, of all the major ministries I've ever been around in my life, no one has ever spoke with more weighty words than that man did when I was around him. And I mean, just incredible. There are people whose words carry weight, and then there's people whose words just don't carry that much weight. You hear the words, but there's a weight to words. There really is a weight to truth when somebody lives it. Really. There's a massive difference between truth that you parrot and truth that is alive in you. And this guy had just lived it for so long that when he said the simplest of things, I mean, that's why it was so wonderful when you got to know him and, and the stories that he'd tell, like the three visions he had and one having of the three appearances of the Lord. I mean, you know, there are some people that there's just no guile in them. You're just so aware that there's just no guile. I mean, if he says this, it happened. And there's something that would come from his spirit that, I don't know, that you wouldn't even, it wasn't even a consideration to think that he was not telling you the full truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And so when he'd share about these visitations of the Lord, they were just dripped with so much anointing that you just knew that you knew that you knew that this man was telling you exactly what happened. He wasn't trying to impress anybody. It was like in his voice, you could tell he could care less if anybody believed him. If anybody was impressed, he was just telling something that happened. And that's something that, you know, you and I get to work on, don't we? Don't we? Because we need our words to carry weight. Because not only will it benefit our own life, but you see, we're called to be of benefit to others. So that's just an area that we all get to work on. Um, So he will even deliver the one for whom you intercede who is not innocent, yes, He'll be delivered through the cleanness of your hands. So it's important for you and I to do our best to keep our hands clean. Thank God we have an advocate, Father, even the Lord Jesus Christ. Then the next page I've got point seven, innocence. This is a quote I take. You've heard me share many times, and I thought what I do in the notes here is because I've referred to it so many times that I would just put all of this introduction from Francis Frangipan's book in these notes as well because to me it's such a powerful, powerful, powerful just page and a half of information. I asked Francis years ago if I could put it in my curriculum, and he said, absolutely, no problem. But let me just read it, and I'm going to read it. And normally, I can take this introduction, and I preach two hours off the introduction because it's so strong, but I'll try to just read it. But innocence is the taproot, he said, of all spiritual victory. The following is the introduction from Francis Frangipan's book, The Three Battlegrounds. Quote, Christians must have wisdom when dealing with spiritual forces. Before we proceed, however, I have two concerns. The first is our need for wisdom. There is an old European proverb worth heeding. It reads, age and treachery will always defeat youth and zeal. 
Before we engage in spiritual warfare, we should know this about Satan. He is an ancient and extremely treacherous foe. On the other hand, the strength of most Christians lies primarily in idealism and untested fervor. It is not long, usually five to ten years in the ministry, and most zeal has waned. The ministry itself imperceptibly deteriorates from a high calling to a job. What occurred was zeal by itself challenged the treachery of hell and lost. The brightness of youthful vision dimmed under the dark cloud of relentless satanic attack. Under the weight of increasing frustrations and discouragement, compromise and then iniquity set in. Yet the real villain was not sin but ignorance. We put the devil in a doctrinal box and expected him to stay there. He did not. He undermined relationships and our love grew cautious. He resisted us in prayer and our faith turned weak. Disillusionment set in. After spending much time with struggling pastors, I've seen a common trend in most. They failed to discern the assault of the devil. They stood unprotected against an ancient and treacherous foe. Jesus prepared his disciples for everything, including war. They saw him casting out demons. In fact, he sent them forth doing the same. But before he sent them out, he charged them to become wise as serpents and yet innocent and harmless as doves, Matthew 10, 16. And this next sentence, like I said to me, is just one of the most important sentences that I ever heard. It really impacted my spirit many years ago. This fusion of God's wisdom and Christ's innocence is the taproot of all spiritual victory, wisdom and innocency of spirit. Like I said, I wind up teaching a lot on this, but we don't have time to go there. But wisdom must proceed. He said, indeed, we can defeat the enemy, but wisdom must precede warfare and virtue must come before victory. Consequently, the goal, consequently, the goal of this book is to train you in wisdom and call you to innocence. We will not disregard what we previously learned. We will still live by faith, but we must learn his ways, which means we must think with wisdom. We have attempted to use faith for more than the Lord intended. We've used it when we should have sought God first for wisdom and the knowledge of His ways. Indeed, it is this very ignorance that has left us vulnerable to satanic attack. We must be trained for battle or we will not succeed. On my second concern, let me say that there are no shortcuts to successful warfare, only ways to make it longer and more perilous. One way of peril is to enter battle blinded by presumption. When it comes to waging war effectively, consider carefulness to be the essence of victory. Listen to this next paragraph. Whatever lofty spiritual plane you imagine that you are on, remember that Adam was in paradise when he fell. Before your increased knowledge and religious experiences, Make you overly self-confident, recall that Solomon wrote three books of Scripture, actually gazed upon the glory of God, yet he fell. Yes, even in your deepest worship of the Almighty, do not forget in long ages past Lucifer himself was once in heaven pouring out praise to God. We have all seen many who have fallen. Jesus warned that the love of many would grow cold. Do not presume it cannot happen to you. Our enemy has been deceiving mankind for thousands of years. Our experience, on the other hand, spans but a brief moment. 
It is wisdom to recognize that we do not know all there is to know concerning warfare. Therefore, be bold, but never brash or arrogant in your prayer life. Use your spiritual authority administratively, compassionately, but never presumptuously. Multitudes of well-meaning but ignorant Christians have approached the enemy with flippant attitudes and have suffered greatly for it. Study several books and seek confirmation from the Lord for your strategies. As it is written, prepare plans by consultation and make war by wise guidance, Proverbs 20, 18. You must be prepared to embrace a way of life, not merely a teaching about warfare. You cannot attack the strongholds of hell on Monday and then decide on Tuesday you do not want to fight. If you challenge Satan in conflict, he will more vigorously set himself against you. You must be prepared. Therefore, our purpose here is to help equip you for battle in each of the three primary battlegrounds, the mind, the church, the heavenly places. There are other battlegrounds, but these are where we will face the most conflict. One last note, a few of you will be instrumental in actually saving your cities. Our prayer is that these chapters will help guide and equip you for that goal. The promise of the Spirit speaks thus, there was a small city with few men in it, and a great king came to it, surrounded it, and constructed large siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he delivered the city by his wisdom. Tell you, that's good enough to just read every day. Seriously. There's a million things in there, like I said, that we could speak to. But I just felt I wanted, I referred to that often. I wanted to put that in there. I would seriously ask you to, to read that over and over and really pray about what Francis said there because it's so powerful. But innocence is the taproot to all spiritual victory. I love that statement. The fusion of God's wisdom and Christ's innocence. And you can see by that, you can hear many things that I've said come out of that, like I said, because that's... That, that, just the introduction, the book's great, but the introduction to me was better than the whole book. <laughs> but uh, it impacted my life 20 years ago, something fierce. And uh, because I just, it just, I don't know, it just hit me. Now, in the next several pages, like I said, of these commentaries from Adam Clark and, and also Kyle Deletz's commentary about that passage of Scripture in Exodus 32, 32, where Moses said, if you will not Forgive the, if you will, will forgive their sin, and if not, blot me, I pray, out of the book of life. Now, just one part I'm going to read, like I said, I'm only going to make a couple of comments on it because I want to get to the rest of the, of the outlines. It's that there's also a, a New Testament verse for this that people, some people don't realize because, again, I want you to see the spirit of these people who were world changers. In the last paragraph, it says, This seems to be simple and pure. This seems to be the simple and pure light in which this place should be viewed. And in this sense, Paul is to be understood in Romans 9, 3, where he says, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants. Moses could not survive the destruction of his people by the neighboring nations, nor their exclusion from the promised land. And Paul seeing the Jews about to be cut off by the Roman sword for their rejection of the gospel, was willing to be deprived of every earthly blessing and even to become a sacrifice for them if this might contribute to the preservation and salvation of the Jewish state. Now, why I read that, and like I said, why I read so much things like this, because I find these little things that just continually validate to me the need to understand that there is the availability to each and every one of us to connect to a cause. That verse, I forget where it even is right now, but is there not a cause? You see, 
you and I need to be connected to a cause. You need to be on a mission. I mean, because again, you see, the people that you and I so admire, I say this over and over again, like the Wigglesworths, whatever, these guys, something happened to them. That can happen to you. And uh, actually, when you think about it, it's kind of scary because you, if you're honest, some of you might say in the honesty of your heart, I don't know if I want that to happen to me. Or you get to the point where you're saying, I wish myself accursed from Christ rather than see this happen to my nation. Those are intercessors. Those are intercessors. Those are people that are connected to something bigger than they are, so much bigger than they are, so much bigger than their own life, their own desires, so much bigger than whether or not they get a new car next year or they get a house with an extra room next year. So much bigger than that that uh, God sees it. And he smiles and he begins to release through them a lot more than he's able to release through many others. That's why, again, I always use that scripture out of Exodus where God delivers his people by stages. All of life is by stages. This is why we talk about there's different stages of Christian life. There's 30%, 60%, 100% Christianity according to the outer court, inner court, holy of holies, however you want to look at it. There's physical Christianity, there's soulish Christianity, and there's spiritual Christianity. I mean, there's different levels. And God loves us incredibly, whichever level we're on. So there's no condemnation due to any of us. But there is levels. There's regeneration by the Spirit of God. There's conversion that takes place because you choose to change the way you think. Like Jesus said in Luke, if you are converted in your thinking, I'll be able to heal you. And then there's discipleship. Regeneration, conversion, discipleship. They're all different levels. Nobody's better than anybody else on any of the levels, but there is other levels. But intercession carries a high cost, but it produces an incredible, incredible product when it's all said and done. People that actually lock on to it. Now, I'm going to read the bottom paragraph, page 46. As a true mediator of his people... Moses was ready to stake his own life for the deliverance of the nation and not to live before God himself if Jehovah did not forgive the people their sin. These words of Moses were the strongest expression of devoted, self-sacrificing love. And they were just as deep and true as the wish expressed by the Apostle Paul in Romans 9, 3, that he might be accursed from Christ for the sake of his brethren according to the flesh. Bingle, another theologian of the day, Bingle compares this wish of the apostle to the prayer of Moses and says with regard to this unbounded fullness of love, quote, it is not easy to estimate the measure of love in a Moses and a Paul for the narrow boundary of our reasoning powers does not comprehend it just as the little child is unable to comprehend the courage of warlike heroes, unquote. The infinite love of God is unable, listen to this, the infinite love of God is unable to withstand the importunity of such love. In other words, when it's seen in a human being. When God sees that depth of love in a person, 
I love what Bingo says. He says, God's unable to withstand it. When he sees that level in a human being, that depth of love for a situation, it says God can't hack it. He has to move. God, who is holy love himself, cannot sacrifice the righteous and good for the unrighteous and guilty, nor can he refuse the mediatorial intercession of his faithful servant so long as the sinful nation has not filled up the measure of its guilt, in which case even the intercession of a Moses and a Samuel would not be able to avert the judgment. And then he gives different passages there. But again, read this for yourself later. And just and see, meditate on it and think about it. Several lessons are seen in the wilderness experience where Moses is leading Israel towards Canaan. Throughout these 40, this 40-year 40 period of time, God is working on Israel to see if they will understand his desire to truly be their God, their only God. So I'll quote here on the outline, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and 3 from the Amplified. It says, And you shall earnestly remember all the way which the Lord your God led you these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and to prove you to know what was in your mind and heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you recognize and personally know that man does not live by bread only. <laughs> but if you're going to have life, man lives by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Hallelujah. The same chapter, verse 16, it refers to this again. Again, this is a lesson learned in the wilderness. Who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Now, this is important. The reason I brought that one out is because, you see, again, you have to hear that the theory behind God's all these trials and tribulations that, that Israel experienced along the way. You'll see that phrase several times, how they began to complain along the way because they got frustrated and they got bitter and they were disappointed along the way. Um, there were too many trials and tribulations along the way. Along the way, a lot of things happened. But again, the point being, as we taught earlier, you know, God brought them out of Israel, basically out of Egypt overnight, but it took them 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel, you know, out of their souls, out of their minds. Their minds were, like it says in another place about when Israel was in bondage to Babylon, it says that their soul had entered into the iron. That's an incredible scripture. Their soul had entered into the iron. It speaks about the iron like a chains when you're in bond, bound with chains in a prison. And what he says is they were in captivity. But what happened is, you see, it's even if, you're in, if they were in physical captivity, he didn't want their minds to be in captivity. But they had been in captivity for so long, Israel had that their mind, their soul had entered into it. And you see, that's like some of us today. You see, I know people who are sick in body who are still fighting an incredible trial in their physical flesh, but they are as free as a bird because their soul hasn't entered into the iron. Their soul hasn't entered in and been brought into captivity to the disease. Their soul is free before God. And ultimately, they walk out of the disease. But what happens with most people is their soul enters into the iron. Their soul enters into the iron of poverty till they identify with it to the point that they'll live in it forever. Or their soul enters into the iron of the disease. They'll live in it forever. Whatever. You can't allow your soul to enter into the iron. You have to be delivered from that. But these trials and tribulations that they went through, 
in the midst of them, just like we read in the last hour in James about, but let patience have its perfect work. It says, in this world you have tribulation, Jesus said. And then in James it says, be of good cheer, be of good cheer, or rather, count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into diverse temptations and trials, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, making you perfect and entire, wanting nothing. God's overall will, listen, was that the character of his people be refined. It was not God's will for them to go through all the tribulation. But once they were in the tribulation, it was God's will that they learn whatever they're supposed to learn in the midst of the tribulation. But hear what the scripture says. It says that the reason they were in there and the reason they found themselves in all that was the overall overriding truth of God was that he wanted them to discover that they cannot live apart from the words of God's mouth. Did you hear me? That you cannot live apart from the words of God's mouth. That you might know that man doth not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. But then that verse, the 12th verse there, that I might do you good in the end. That's so important. Because again, it's not God's will that you camp and live for the rest of your life in the tribulation, in the trial, that you never leave it. Because God has never ever intended to leave, to leave you ever in some situation of despondency, of distress, of destruction. God's job, God's will is always whatever you do, when it's all said and done, you will come out to your wealthy place, to your, to your good habitation, to your peaceful habitation. That's always the plan of God. But again, you see, God wants consistency. He wants fiber. <laughs> he wants spiritual fiber in our, in, our, in our life. He wants spiritual backbone. And the fact of the matter is, whether you like it, I like it, or whatever, there is some suffering, not the suffering that the world, that so many churches teach, not the suffering, the sickness, the disease, but I mean, there is the, there is the warfare that you and I go through that is, it is, a, it is a form of suffering where you battle through this stuff. And you come out on the other side. But you do come out on the other side. And if you submit to God, this is the problem. See, if you'll submit to God in the middle of it instead of submitting to the lies, you'll find yourself being just very, very powerful afterwards. And again, because you will have come through that experience. Experience worth with hope and hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God will be shed abroad in your hearts by the Holy Ghost. It's never been God's will that you camp in the middle of it. That's why we always kind of jokingly say, this has come to pass. <laughs> These things come, but they come to pass. Some people, when they say they're in a trial, they mean just that, they're in a trial. They've camped there. Uh, but we should, you know, even if we say it correctly, I'm going through a trial. And that's what you're supposed to do, is go through it, not stay in it. Go through it. Go through the thing. Go through the thing. Point B, the load is too too heavy to carry alone. In Numbers 11, the people begin to grumble or complain once again. As Moses begins to consider his own abilities, God shares his desire to bring help. Numbers 11, 14 through 17 in the outline. Moses said, I am not able to carry all these people alone because the burden is too heavy for me. And if this is the way you deal with me, this is good. Kill me, I pray you. Anybody ever felt like that? Now think about it. why I love this. I love the humanity of Moses, you know. In other words, he's just a guy like we are. 
He's just an individual, a human being like we are. Sometimes you just go, God, I can't hack this anymore. Just, if this is the way it's going to be, just let me die. Let me get out of this thing. I'm, I can't hack it anymore. It's too heavy. It's just too heavy. Well, God's plan is when something, if it gets that heavy, he will lead you to others who will understand. Verse 14 again, I am not able to carry all these people alone because the burden is too heavy for me. And if this is the way you deal with me, kill me, I pray you at once and be granting me a favor and let me not see my wretchedness and the failure of all my efforts. I love the Lord because really in all these things, God just, when you talk to God like that, God just shines you on. Doesn't even listen to that sniveling. He just says, the Lord said to Moses, gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them and bring them to the tent of meeting and let them stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there and I will take of the spirit which is upon you and will put it upon them and they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you may not have to bear it yourself alone. Hallelujah. Now that's a promise of God. If something does get too heavy, he said that he can lead you to some people and you need to release your faith for it. Lead you to some people that will come alongside you and he'll give you ways to speak to them where you can share. And again, not everyone will. We'll get to it here in a minute when we talk about agreement. But you'll be able to discern in your spirit those who are able to, as it were, connect with your faith and see things as you see things in a certain situation. Now, that's powerful then because, again, you get the power of a corporate anointing as opposed to an individual anointing. And this is rare. But this is where they come with the whole issue of transference of spirits. Alexander Ness was a writer from Canada who's written an incredible book called Just That, Transference of Spirits, many, many years ago. Because it is, the Bible does teach that spirits are transferable. It teaches in the New Testament as well. And that's why you need to be careful who your little kids play with sometimes. Because spirits are transferable. The old story, like he tells in the beginning of the book, is have you ever wondered, like, when little Johnny comes home from school and he goes next door to play with little Billy, and when he comes home, little Johnny acts so much like little Billy all the time? <laughs> and it's because their spirits are transferable. I mean, it's a fact. This is why you want to hang around. You guard your own heart above all that you guard. And you walk in the Word of God so that you're discerning and you don't allow something wrong to get in your thinking. Because listen, somebody else starts to share how they think about something. See, and you've got to be able to look at them and love them and say, well, I'm not going to think that way. I may not say it out loud to them, but I just don't allow that thinking to begin to seed itself in my spirit. You are either influenced or you influence. It's just that simple. And you need to determine to influence. And you need to determine who, influence, who you allow to be of influence in your life. But this is why we always say of all things, you see, who needs to be the greatest influence in your life? God. Duh. Takes great revelation to know that, to know that doesn't it? But anyhow, because, but, so what God does is he says this. He said, I'm going to take of the spirit that's upon you and put upon them. And he'll do that. And that's why, that's what the whole laying on of hands process is all about, really. That's why the Bible says, lay hands on no man suddenly. That's why the Bible says, be careful who you fellowship with. There's a whole teaching I used to do years ago called wrong alliances. I mean, I haven't taught in a long time, but 
But the Bible talks about associations, who you associate with. And there's tons of scripture to tell you who to associate with and who not to associate with. And just because the stuff gets on on. Don't associate with an angry man, it says. Don't associate. The Bible says do not associate with him who speaks too freely. None of you know people who talk too much, do you? When you do that, you all have to point a finger at yourself. <laughs> we all speak too freely sometimes, but think about it. It says that, Proverbs, don't associate with people who talk too much. Well, that, we'd have no friends. <laughs> the Lord's desire, point two, is to bring help in large tasks. But one essential is that whoever joins you have the same spirit, the same desire and heart. This echoes Peter's statement of those of, quote, like precious faith, or Paul's statement of those who are of the same, quote, household of faith. Agreement is just too important an issue to not embrace when it comes to successful prayer with others. For disagreement is the place of powerlessness, while agreement is the place of power. Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel illustrate that perfectly. Genesis 11:6. 6. To me, this is always one of the most incredible verses in Scripture. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people. Remember, he's looking at Nimrod and watching them as they all set out. The Bible says they set out to build a city and a tower that would reach into heaven itself. When I used to teach this in the Bible school, I'd ask the students, How many of you believe they could have built a tower and a city that would have reached into heaven itself? And everybody says, No. And I said, Well, I understand what you said, but what does God say? God said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Listen, God said this now. God said this. God said this. And now nothing they have imagined they can do will be impossible to them. One of the greatest lessons in all of the Bible. God himself says where you find one people that will have one language. They all speak the same thing. They all have the same mind. It's called harmony. It's called real unity. See, most of us have never really experienced perfect harmony. So we don't know how powerful it is. But you need to at least receive that as the word of God. God said, God said, that was said from heaven. Can you, if you can imagine the depth, the prof, how, how, I mean, how profound, profound that is. When you, this is why, again, you see, the church is so weak is because the church is all saying diverse things. We've got a million different doctrines as opposed to the apostles' doctrine, as opposed to the doctrine of Scripture. Because Satan knows all he has to do is keep you guys lovingly disagreeing. And uh, like I said, we can't agree to disagree on things. But God, when you see what happens, when people all become of the same mind, one mind. That's why, again, when you do have a group of people, part of the reason for the school, part of the reason I'm, you know, things I'm thinking towards as far as whatever, I, I just, if you can get a group of people who will stick with you for at least a year, Actually, it's good to have them a couple years, three years, realistically. But if you can get a group of people who will actually submit themselves to discipleship and they will stick out the route, go the whole course, go the whole mile, go the whole thing, 
And they'll actually, you know, and then you begin to weed out because there's always an inner circle, an outer circle, and a center circle. <laughs> but you, when you find that group, that, that group who've, who are of like precious faith, you see, that's like, it's like, it's like an atom. It's like, you see, a molecule. There's an electron field. Remember? Everything's in threes. Electrons, neutrons, protons. The mass, the major mass when you look at an electron, you know, when you look at an, an atom, the mass of anything is almost all electrons. But there's no weight to the electron field. Not really. Remember, it's, it's, it's the protons are moving this way, but it's just that neutron. It's that core. It's the core. It's the core. It's, it's when you get to the actual part that has the atomic weight to it. It's actually that core. That's what nuclear power comes from, the idea of the fusing and the splitting of that atom. It's, that's where the power is. It's when it, you reach critical mass that you have explosive power. But critical mass only happens when you deal with the heart and the core of something where there's, that's where the absolute power is. So what I'm trying to spit out is if you could ever get to a place where everybody is speaking the same thing, God has said there's nothing impossible. God said that. So hell has known forever. All I have to do is divide the way you speak. All I have to do is keep you proud enough that you opinionate yourself away from God as opposed to get in aggressive, violent agreement with what heaven says. And the more we do that, the weaker we are. Point C, be careful for what you ask. Numbers 11, 31, 34. And there went forth a wind from the Lord and brought quails from the sea and let them fall so they flew low beside the camp about a day's journey on this side and on the other side around the camp about two cubits above the ground. Now cubits, 18 inches. You're talking about basically three foot deep a quail. And the people rose all that day and all that night and all the next day and caught and gathered the quails. He who gathered least gathered 10 homers and they spread them out for themselves round about the camp to cure them by drying. But while the meat was yet between their teeth, because remember before they were crying out, they said, we, don't, we detest this loathsome manna. We're sick of this stuff. We're sick of this manna. We're sick of all that. We don't want this. Give us meat. 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 So God gave them meat. See, they profaned the supernatural provision of God. That was a wilderness provision. And it was a wilderness provision only because the people themselves had acted in such a way that they had the wilderness to live in in the first place. Remember, they murmured and complained at the point that that, it says, the reason they went around in circles for 40 years was because of their murmuring and their complaining. So it's all their own fault anyhow. But they asked for quail. So God brought them quail. But verse 33 says, while the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people. The Lord smote them with a very great plague. The place was called Kibroth Hatava, the graves of sensuous desire, because there they buried the people who lusted, whose physical appetite caused them to sin. Point two, so many in the body of Christ seem not to understand this point, that their will can be so strong in areas that God will allow what they want, even supply what they want, even when it's not His perfect will. That's scriptural. The end result is not God's blessing. In other words, you see, you can force an issue. You can force an issue. 
You can force an issue and even be proud about it and say, look what God did. You can force an issue and then hate yourself later because, well, let me just... The end result is not God's blessing. The arm of the flesh, as it says in Jeremiah, will always result in something being lost. It's akin to working out your own plan of salvation, which is always dangerous. Next page, point A, we see that very classic truth, 1 Samuel, the 8th chapter. I don't have time to go there and read it, where Israel, of course, remember, they said, we don't want, we don't want God as our king. We want a man king. Every other nation has a king that we can put our eyes on. We want one. We want one. That's lust. We want one. I want a king. We want a king that we can look at, that we can pat on the back, that we can say, look how big he is, look how strong he is, look how well he dresses, isn't he cool? Somebody we can be proud of. Now, it's not God's will for them to have a king, is it? Is it? Because God wanted to be their king. But they asked for a king. So what happened? God gave them a king. Was it God's will? No. But they asked. They prayed. Israel rejects God as their king and demands a man as their king. They get what they ask for. If then if you would take your own time to go to 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 17 through 19, you'll read what happens there and you'll... And then here I've got printed out for you Hosea 13, chapter 9, Hosea chapter 13, verses 9, 10, and 11 in the King James, where the prophet Hosea said, O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself, but in me is thine help. I will be thy king. Where is any other that may save thee in all thy cities? And thy judges of whom thou saidest, give me a king and princes. I gave thee a king in mine anger, and I took him away in my wrath. But Isaiah 50, the next one in the Amplified Bible, this verse hit me about 15 years ago real strong. Isaiah 50, verse 11. Really listen to this verse where Isaiah prophesied of, a, of the people that we're surrounded with today. He said, Behold, all you enemies of your own selves who attempt to kindle your own fire and work out your own plans of salvation, who surround and gird yourself with momentary sparks, darts, and firebrands that you set aflame, Listen to this. Walk by the light of your self-made fire and in the sparks that you have kindled for yourself, if you will. But this shall you have from my hand. You shall lie down in grief and in torment. Isn't that horrible? Self-made fire. In other words, I'm going to have it my way. I'm going to do it my way. And see, this whole thing about intercession, this whole thing, constantly asking for things, and God would even give them what they asked for, but it wasn't a blessing. It was a cursing. But... You see, this is, sometime we, I'll, I'll teach on that by itself because you need to see it. There's a powerful, powerful rendition of the Greek in James where it says, you know how we quote it so often, if you ask anything according to his will? This, you know, if we ask anything according to the will of God, we know that he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, we know that he grants us the petitions that we desire. You know that there's a strong argument from lexicons that what the scripture actually says there is if you ask anything according to God's will for asking, he'll grant it to you. In other words, you need to hear me. You can know how to ask God. You see, and why you validate that, why it can be validated is because you engage a spiritual law that works every time. Even when it's not God's will. But it's if you know how to ask, if you understand the principle of faith. See, your human will can get involved and you can actually exercise 
Listen, don't we always say that the world itself exercises spiritual laws, sowing and reaping, for example? Does it work for a sinner as well as it works for a believer? Yes. Of course it does. There's a real argument for that. And this is what I mean. See, a lot of people, well, just pray, pray. Things can happen. You can get some. I'm just trying to say you can get, I, know, I don't want anybody to be confused. This is why I want you to worship God more than you petition God. Because that way you purge yourself of your own will. And you rid yourself of your own agenda. Because some people are into spiritual witchcraft and they think it's intercession. The humble heart of Moses, the intercessor, I've got to hurry, like I said, regardless of the area of Christian duty, whether intercessor, minister, layman, humility is a key to being used of God. Moses was known as one of the meekest of all men, Jesus being also described as the same. Numbers 12, verses 1 through 15 in the Amplified Bible. Now Miriam and Aaron talked against Moses, their brother, because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Now this is Aaron and his wife. In other words, Lord's only spoken by Moses. Hey, doesn't he speak by us as well? And the Lord heard it. The Lord hears that kind of talk, my friends. Now the man Moses was very meek, gentle, kind, and humble, or above all the men on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. <laughs> God was going to have a meeting. <laughs> and they all came out. And he said in verse 6, And he said, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision and speak to him in a dream. But not so with my servant Moses. He is entrusted and faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth directly, clearly, and not in dark speeches. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. And when the cloud departed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous as white as snow. And Aaron looked at Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, O oh, my Lord, I plead with you, lay not the sin upon us in which we have done foolishly and in which we have sinned. Let her not be as one dead already half decomposed when he comes out of his mother's womb. And Moses cried to the Lord and said, Lord, they sniveled against me. Thank you. I'll be God now to them, and they're out of my way. <laughs> no. Of course not. Moses cried to the Lord and said, Heal her now, O God, I beseech you. And the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, should she not be ashamed for seven days? Let her be shut up outside the camp for seven days, and after that let her be brought in again. So Miriam was shut up without the camp seven days, and the people did not journey on until Miriam was brought in again. Hallelujah. But the point is, here's a man, the chief intercessor underneath Jesus Christ that the Bible lists, and the very people closest to him begin to rail against him and say, listen, God speaks through us too. We've got as much right to be heard as anybody else. That offended God to the point that they became leprous. And you would think that that man who was the leader, the rightful leader, might just want to turn and say, well, you guys have been, you know, horrific. You're, you're like uh, Absaloms. You're out of the camp. Out of, you're out. Get out of here. You're fired. But Moses, again, He's got something big working in him that God give it to all of us. Or he just, rather than anything, he just said, heal him, please, Father, forgive him. Forgive him, heal him. Again, like I said, I've got to run, run down, but you see the very same thing here in this next passage. You read it for yourself. Numbers 14, 11, after the spies return. So let me, just, let me just read the summary. You can read the rest of this on yourself. Throughout the life of Moses, we find the perpetual and ongoing story of a man dealing with people who simply don't want to follow the way of the Lord, though countless miracles and deliverances are personally experienced by them all. 
If there's anything to be seen in a thorough study of Moses and his dealings with Israel, it is the humanity, it is the humanity that he retains in his own fears and mistakes, while at the same time moving intimately with the very presence of God. We too must be persuaded that our humanity, that our humanity does not disqualify us. Nothing we can do can save anyone. However, a living and vital relationship, a face-to-face relationship with God can empower us to be of aid to many. Our own understanding of the need of an attitude of long-suffering is critical as well, as again the servant of the Lord must be patient. With these things in mind and a constant revelation of the covenant we have with God, we can make a difference in this world. It is true that you may never see the fullness of what you accomplish in prayer on this side of heaven, but always remember this above all else, your Father will see what you do in secret, and your labor of love will never be fruitless. Father, again, we just love you and we thank you so much. And again, we just trust, Father, this word, the seed that it is, will go to work in our own spirits. There will blossom into an incredible garden that many others may eat from because a fruit tree never eats its own fruit. We bear fruit so that others might eat from our lives. So we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would like to obtain more teaching material by Rod Anderson, please visit www.prayerforthenations.com or call us or write to us using the contact details on your CD or cassette case.